scan out. We should have enough volunteers to scan everyone uh, out uh, close to the 7 o'clock mark. Tomorrow morning, 8 a.m. we start. There is coffee, there is food and beverage being served early in the morning. In case you're wondering, I want to share with you, if you're running late, don't slam on the gas. It's okay to be a couple of minutes late. I'm a fellow peer, and I appreciate you arriving safely versus giving me guilt. <laughs> That's all I need is more guilt <laughs> in addition to whatever other guilt I get. Just go to another bar That's mitzvah. Another you'll one. be fine. That's another <laughs> one. I have no data to back up that guilt. <laughs> but I can assure you. You have a Jewish mother. <laughs> anyway. It's all the data you need. Okay. Thank you, Dr. McCoy. For that. <laughs> <laughs> Next time, shut his mic up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is he looking at me? <laughs> okay. All right, doctors, I'm going to come around and scan. I'm going to pass around a clipboard on each side. If you want uh, copies of my slides, just put your email address on there, name and email address. I'll get you copies of everything. People were asking about some of the papers, like the uh, spasms paper. I'll include that in everything. I'll give you a bunch of other stuff. All of the stroke stuff that we're going to talk about now, we're not going to go through the literature in you know exquisite detail, but I will give you all of the papers and everything. Um, you know, as part of what I send you. So, <clears throat> all right, we're on the home stretch. Everybody, all right? Still with me? All right. So, we're going to talk about medical errors. I do want to reinforce a couple of things and make sure I didn't leave anything out. <clears throat> I already told you Monday, right, all the things you got to do. One of them, read your policy, get a copy. Make sure you have a copy of your policy. Understand what your malpractice coverage is, okay? Put it side by side next to our coverage, and, you know, there's not a lot of guarantees in life, but I know what other policies are out there. We have a better policy. Take a look at that. We're going to get into the dissection and stroke issue. We talked about obstetrics. I pretty much covered the website, Facebook, social media stuff. Clean that stuff up. You don't want to wait until you, 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 know, you get that letter from the attorney to clean it up. <coughs> uh, we didn't get into informed consent. We'll see if we have time to talk about this now uh, under the medical errors section. Bottom line is make sure that you have a process in place to gather informed consent from your patient. You know, I'm giving you informed consent, you know, in, in a nutshell. Understand that informed consent is not a piece of paper. It's not a piece of paper. It's a process. It's a never-ending process. You might be memorializing it with a piece of paper and a document that you sign. The patient signs, that's good. But if you've been taking care of that patient for 10 years and you still have that original informed consent in there, it's time to get a new one. I would suggest updating them yearly, okay? Obviously, support subluxation research and join the Florida Chiropractic Society. You know, help these guys, even if it's going to be just through writing a check, I would urge you to get more involved and help, you know, pick up a shovel or 
grab an oar and help them row in the right direction. But if all it can be for you right now is writing a check and supporting the pack or being a member, do that. We need this organization in this state. Um, I have some research journals out there. That'll be stuff you can look at later. Let's get the stroke. <coughs> just, what, just how you wanted to end the day. You're probably about to have a stroke. Don't you feel sorry for the people that just came for this session? <laughs> like, who is that crazy person? So <coughs> let's address this. Now, I'm going to try to cut to the chase on it. So don't, we don't belabor this. I've been doing this long enough that I think I've got this nailed down in terms of the easiest way to get the points across. <laughs> Understand where you live and practice, okay? Do you understand that this region of the country where, especially now Northern Florida, is known as, and you see it going all across here, right? It's known as the stroke what? Anybody know belt? It's known as the stroke belt because it's like a belt across the middle of the country, right? Okay. You practice in the stroke belt. <laughs> okay. Uh, honestly, we should just wrap it up and go home after that, right? I mean, what else do we need to talk about? Okay. You, you live and practice in this area, okay? Here, this is uh, prevalence. These are death rates, okay? Now, here's an interesting thing. The purple, the more purple, the worse it is. Look at Florida. Now, wouldn't you think that Florida would be pretty bad? Well, here's the thing. When you look at the stroke issue, it's really younger than the population that we see in Florida that we're dealing with, especially in the population that are going to chiropractors. Okay? We'll flush this out a little bit. Who put that in there? She's coming into your office. She's coming in next week. She's got an appointment on Wednesday. Okay? Here, here's, here's how I want to try to drive this point home. Okay? You, you know all about this because it's all popular in the chiropractic profession these days, right? We understand that inflammation is a common factor in a number of chronic diseases, yes? You understand this, right? I mean, we're talking about everything from Alzheimer's, dementia, to autism, to ADHD, to diabetes, to cardiovascular disease. It's all about inflammation, right? Okay? These people out there, these earthlings, I refer to them as walking, talking bags of inflammation. Okay? That's what they are. I mean, you can look at them and you say, holy crap, that person is inflamed, right? Just by looking at them. All right? The wheat belly, the whole thing. Okay? They're going to pop at some point. Okay? Those vessels are going to rupture at some point. You do not want that to happen in your office. You with me so far? Okay. If it's going to happen in your office, where do you want it to happen? In a waiting room, preferably in the parking lot. Okay. Now, you don't want to be like the guy that we just had a claim for two weeks ago. 
60-something-year-old man comes into the chiropractor's office. He'd been under care for several years, okay? So the chiropractor, you know, his, his spidey senses weren't tingling that anything was out of the ordinary. The guy was complaining of garden variety neck pain that day. He adjusted him, and the guy didn't feel good afterwards. He felt dizzy, felt out of sorts, sort of nondescript symptoms. He let him go. Okay? Finishes adjusting his patients. This was in the morning before lunch. His CA comes to the adjusting room and says, whatever the patient's name was, is out in the parking lot sitting in his truck. He never left. Chiropractor goes out to the parking lot, goes to the truck. The guy is sitting in his truck. He's alert. Okay? He's awake. He's alive. But he's sitting on his hand, his arm. Okay? His arm is like, you know, and he's sitting on it. And the chiropractor is like, you know, are you okay? What's going on? You're, you're sitting on, his, on your arm. This guy didn't even realize he was sitting on his arm. He couldn't feel his arm. He, didn't, he was sort of out of sorts now, didn't really understand where he was, right? Chiropractor leaves him there, goes back into his office, says, I'm going to come back and check on you. Goes back into his office, adjusts a few people, comes back out to check on the guy. The guy is still sitting there with, with, sitting on his hand, right? He's no, no different than he was. But at the same time, out walks the last patient that he just adjusted. This last patient he just adjusted happened to be a nurse. The nurse looks at the guy and says, he had a stroke. <laughs> so the nurse called the ambulance. There is no way this is going to end well for the chiropractor. Okay? So not only is it important what you do before the event, if it happens in your office, but it's also extremely important what you do after the event. Okay? <clears throat> I want you to imagine a ye yellow legal pad. Okay? And you draw a line down the center of it. Okay? This is what I do when I get a case. This is what most attorneys do when they get a case. Draw a line down the center. On one, now you got two columns. On one side, you got aggravating circumstances. On the other side, you got mitigating circumstances. What does that mean? Aggravating are all the things the doctor did to make the situation worse. Mitigating are all the things the doctor did to make the situation better. Which column do you want to have more line items? Mitigating. Mitigating. Okay, we're on the same page so far. Okay? So that's what this whole thing is about, okay? You want to have more things in that mitigating column because she's coming into your office. She may not be, okay? Anybody recognize who this is? This is Katie May, the Playboy model who is no longer with us because her estate claims that she suffered a dissection and a stroke following a couple of visits to her chiropractor, okay? This was all over the press, right? Here are her tweets around that time. Pinched a nerve in my neck in a photo shoot and got adjusted this morning. It really hurts. Any home remedy suggestion? Okay. Her next tweet, thanks. It still hurts going back to the chiropractor tomorrow. So she didn't just see the chiropractor once. Okay. She saw, her, saw him several times after this happened. Okay. Something's wrong with this. I just want to show you some of the headlines here. Playboy model saw a chiropractor for neck pain prior to deadly stroke, but not a medical doctor, family says. 
Playboy model Katie Mays fatal stroke followed neck pain from a bad fall during photo shoot and two chiropractor visits. Playboy model Katie Dave died from a stroke after a second chiropractor visit. Uh, not medical doctor. Did chiropractic manipulation of her neck cause Katie Mays stroke? Playboy model Katie May did not seek medical attention after the fall. Stroke risk, you know, so then there was a whole story about stroke risk. You know, every time this happens, and there's a new one circulating now on social media and the Internet, if you haven't seen it. I think it's out of Ohio. Uh, some guy is actually being interviewed by the news that he had this stroke that the chiropractor caused. And, you know, so that's making its way through uh, the interweb. <laughs> Keep in mind that this young woman had a daughter. Her daughter no longer has a mother. I mean, we're talking about serious issues here. We're talking about life and death. I'm not telling, this, telling you this to impress you. I'm just telling you this to impress upon you that, and I'm not telling you this to brag, that I have, without a doubt, I don't have any doubt about this, seen more stroke cases in 30 years, because that's how long I've been doing actual witness work, than anybody else I know in this profession doing this kind of work, okay? One of the reasons for that is for about a 10-year period of time before I started my own malpractice company, I was a consultant for a major malpractice underwriter. So I saw every single claim that went through that company for a decade. And my job wasn't to tell them you know, how to defend it or anything else. My job was to tell them whether to just pay it and move on or to fight it. Right, very black and white. Can you win this? Can we win this or can't we? Right, so we had to triage these cases. And so I've seen a lot of stroke cases and I've seen a lot of death cases from dissection and stroke. So understand that people die from this stuff. Typically the way people die after a dissection and a subsequent stroke is they end up in the hospital, they end up on a ventilator, they get pneumonia and they die from the, from the pneumonia, okay? That's typically how it goes south. <clears throat> this is her uh, autopsy report. Uh, this is a very lengthy report. There were a couple of things maybe that I wanted to focus on. Yeah, here it is. So <clears throat> you see this posterior lano-occipital membrane here, right? And where the vertebral artery goes through. If you look at the um, autopsy report, if this is it or not. Uh, yeah, there it is. Thrombus at C1, C2 cervical vertebra. So there was a thrombus noted right in this area here, right where that vertebral artery ends up going up in, into the head. Okay. Now, here's the argument from the defense side of this. All right. And this, this will, I don't predict that this will ever see the inside of a courtroom. If it hasn't settled already, I'm sure it's going to settle out of court. But the argument on the defense side is that the dissection was caused by the fall that she had at the photo shoot. Okay? Perfectly reasonable explanation. The problem is that that's not a get out of jail free card. All right? you are probably used to responding to the stroke issue by saying the research says chiropractors don't cause strokes, right? I mean, this is what we've been, this is what you've been told. This is what the scientific literature says. And you can be clear about that. 
There's, there's really no shades of gray when it comes to this. According to the scientific literature, there is, there is no uh, causation-related issues between chiropractic adjustments, manipulation, dissection, and stroke. There's no causation. There is no correlation that one causes the other. All right? In fact, the scientific literature says basically the opposite. The scientific literature says that people going to see a chiropractor and people going to see a medical doctor have the same rate of stroke. You see what I'm saying? Okay? And a, and a medical doctor is not manipulating their neck. Okay? So the issue isn't whether or not we're causing strokes. The issue is whether or not you're recognizing a dissection that's in process right now in front of you in your office. Okay? So it doesn't matter in this case, right? If I was arguing on the plaintiff's side for Katie May's side in this, I wouldn't care that they're going to put out all this literature that says chiropractors don't cause strokes because I'd be going to be right open in front when I'm testifying on, on the stand in front of that jury and saying it doesn't matter. The issue is he didn't recognize that that's what was going on with her when she walked into the office, okay? And that's really the issue these days. And there's no way around that, okay? So... What does that mean to you starting Monday? That means to you starting Monday that you have to view these people differently. Okay, we talked earlier when we started today about critical thinking and about slowing down, okay? When somebody comes into your office from this point forward, if you're not already doing this, and is complaining of neck pain and or headaches, and you could add dizziness and blurred vision and some other things, but let's just focus on the neck pain and headaches for purposes of this discussion. If somebody comes in Monday and says, I have headache or I have neck pain or I have both, in your differential, we were talking about differential diagnosis before, you must consider that the cause of the neck pain, the cause of the headache is due to a dissection. You must consider that that might be one of the differentials. It might just be that they're subluxated. It might just be that they have some tension or they're under stress or something along those lines or they have some arthritic changes or DG, whatever it happens to be. But it could also be that they are in the process of undergoing a dissection. Because think about this. If the arteries in your neck were torn and dissecting, okay, the layers of that artery are dissecting, what would one of your symptoms be? Neck pain. Neck pain. Okay, or headaches, depending upon the effect of, you know, altering blood flow and things of that nature, okay, or referred pain from the tearing of that artery, okay. So you have to consider that. Now, <clears throat> here's, here's why you don't like me saying this to you, all right, because if you are thinking about this critically, you're saying, McCoy, you're out of your mind. I'm going to see 100 patients on Monday. 70 of them are going to have neck pain or headaches. What the hell are you telling me I got to do? Right? I'm telling you exactly what you think I'm telling you you have to do. You have to rule out the section in that patient. Okay? Before you go any further. Because here's the thing. Once you do the adjustment, the toothpaste is out of the tube. There's no getting it back in. No way. It's done. It's over. Okay? So if you think about this more like moving a needle, because clinical practice is a little more subjective 
than you know, trying to be all this black and white stuff. Think about it trying to move a needle. And the needle either goes towards it's safe to adjust or it's not safe to adjust. Okay? So if somebody comes in, says they have neck pain and or headaches, and you think, okay, well, maybe this is a dissection because McCoy says I got to rule that out, then you have to do whatever you got to do clinically to move that needle towards it's safe to adjust. If you can't move that needle in that direction, don't adjust. Okay? And listen, I get it. Chiropractors, you know, listen, if I just adjust them, they're going to feel better. I, I just know it. I, I see this every day. This is what I do. It's my bread and butter, blah, blah, blah. I get that. I'm telling you what I told you at the beginning of this, right? Not everybody needs to be adjusted by you. Everybody needs to be checked and adjusted if necessary, but they don't need to be checked and adjusted by you, okay? Because remember, this is about your risk, not just the patient, okay? This is about what's going to happen to you if this thing advances and turns into a dissection and a stroke case. Yes, sir? Good. I'm glad you mentioned George's. We're going to get to George's in a second. Okay. So how do you do this? Here's what I, here's what I won't do now. Okay. I can't get into teaching you clinical skills because then we're going to break up into groups and we're going to start doing, you know, cardiovascular exams. And listen, I taught diagnosis and management to 12 quarter students for 18 years at life. So I could do it. You don't want to do that today. Okay. You certainly don't want to do it with me looking over your shoulder. All right. So you may have to go back and do some refreshing, okay, on clinical exam procedures of the nervous system and the cardiovascular system. All right. But let's talk about the George's test thing, because we might be able to kill two birds with one stone, even though it's not at this point in the presentation. How many of you were taught in school to do George's test? Okay. So, so everybody had their hands up probably went to school 10 years or more, right? You've been out at least 10 years, maybe longer than that, okay? If you're out of school within the past 10 years, chances are you were not taught George's test, okay? Here's why you weren't taught it. Because when all these old timers like myself went to school, we had to do George's test on every patient in the clinic before you could go any further, right? Before the exam was over, that's the last thing that you had to do, you had to do George's test, all right? So imagine that generations and generations of chiropractors were taught that this is the test you're supposed to do on every patient. It became a standard of care, you got it? So then when the stroke thing blew up in you know the mid 90s and then we got into the 2000s when it really blew up, and the attorneys were really making sort of a cottage industry of stroke cases and chiropractors, the largest malpractice insurer in the profession was losing these cases. And they were losing the cases because what was happening is the doctors weren't doing George's test. And because it was a standard of care, it was an automatic, this is a violation of a standard of care, a bad thing happened, settle the case. So they were losing these cases. And instead of going back to the profession and saying, hey, guys, you know, you got to do a more thorough exam and screen these people and triage them. Remember the beginning of the, the, the talk today, right? You got to triage them better. Instead of doing that, 
they went to the Association of Chiropractic Colleges and they have a committee of clinic directors. And they said, hey, can you guys do a research study and go into the literature and tell us what the validity and reliability of George's test is? Guess what the Association of Chiropractic Colleges clinic directors came back and told them? It's not valid and it's not reliable. So they made a decision to remove it from the curriculum of all chiropractic colleges. I still have a memo from the dean at the time that said cease and desist from teaching George's test. I will tell you that if you were a student and you came through my class, I never ceased and desisted from teaching George's test. Okay? So <clears throat> it's all about the Benjamins, baby, right? It's all about money. They were losing money. Instead of fixing the problem, let's cover up the symptoms. Right? Yeah, exactly. So <clears throat> that's why they got rid of George's test. And, and here's the logical question to ask, right? If George's test isn't valid and reliable, and you got rid of that, teaching that, how come you didn't get rid of all the other tests that you make students learn that aren't valid and reliable? Right. All, those, all that pushing on heads and lifting legs, it's not valid, not reliable. Okay? Now, listen. I think we would all agree that if you do something enough and you do it enough times that you might get good at it and that, that information that you get back might be valuable to you, okay? That's another issue. But the bottom line is this was about money. It wasn't about clinical issues. Ultimately, it wasn't about doing what's in the best interest of patients or chiropractors. It was about saving some money. So that's where we find ourselves today with George's test. For those of you that don't understand or know what George's test is, and even for those of you that learned it, let me give you a little refresher. George's test has a few parts. The first part is a history. You take a history, okay? Now, those of you that, you know, like Kahneman, thinking critically, okay, will probably beat me to the punch here, at least in your own head. The first part of George's test is a history. Typical history, right? But some of the things you want to focus on are high blood pressure, are you on medications for cardiovascular problems, are you on birth control pills, you know, all those red flag type stuff. I mean, all stuff you should be asking anyway, okay? The next part of George's test is when we get into the physical examination portion. You take blood pressure, right, bilaterally. You check their pulse bilaterally. You compare it side to side. You then auscultate their carotid and subclavian arteries listening for breweries, okay? Now, you know, we can kind of snicker uh, in terms of what our skill set is uh, of determining whether or not somebody has a brewery in the carotid or subclavian artery, but just, you know, just put that on the back burner for a second. The next part of George's test after the blood pressure and auscultation is what? What's the very last part of George's test? The provocative maneuvers, okay? Why do they call orthopedic tests provocative maneuvers? Because you're intentionally inflicting pain or trying to on this patient to come up with a differential diagnosis, okay? So the last part of George's test is a provocative maneuver. In George's test, if you remember from school, for those that learned it, if you have a positive, at any point during George's test, and keep in mind, the provocative maneuver is not George's test. George's test is the whole thing, okay? 
there's other names for the provocative maneuvers, right? There's several different provocative maneuvers that you can do that are similar to, to what's done in George's test. If George's test is positive in the history, you have a positive George's test. If you have a positive George's test in the history, you don't have to go any further. It's positive. You remember this from school? Okay. If the history is clean and you get to the blood pressure and you have a differential of 10 millimeters of mercury from one side to the other, you have a positive George's test. Don't go any further and do the provocative maneuver, is what they said. Okay. My only purpose in going through George's test is to illustrate to you that all George did was take physical exam procedures and package them together to come up with a procedure to screen for you know, these types of problems. You still got to do those things. Just because you know, the largest malpractice insurer said don't do Georgia's test doesn't mean that you don't have to do the components of it. Okay? Yeah. I can tell you that when I get a stroke case, it's a couple of things that I look for. Depending upon the state, I want to know if there's an informed consent because some states require informed consent, some of them don't. So that's one of the first things I look for. And the next thing I look for is, did the doctor do anything that resembles George's test, right? Did they do any type of neurological exam? Did they do any uh, type of cardiovascular stuff? Did they ask any of those types of questions in their history? Right? Because even if they didn't say, I did George's test and it was negative, but they did some of the components of it, we're, I'm happy. Right? Because they were attempting to triage this patient appropriately. All right? So it could be as simple, to, to sort of answer your question, it could be as simple as checking their cranial nerves quickly. Right? Have them smile, frown, puff out their cheeks, raise their eyebrows. Pay attention to their speech. Are they slurring their words? Have them follow your finger. See if they can stand with their eyes. I mean, there's all kinds of things that you can do as a quick, as a quick screening tool in terms of neurological evaluation, okay? You can take their blood pressure. You can check their pulse, those sort of things, all right? The point here is, though, you got to move that needle towards it's safe to adjust, all right? If you do whatever you do, to screen them at that point, and you're not moving that needle in your mind, okay, then don't make the adjustment. Keep going, all right, in terms of the evaluation. So what would be the further evaluation at that point? Let's say that you, let's say you, I don't know, you took their blood pressure and blood pressure was elevated. Let's say um, you, um, check their uh, cranial nerves, and maybe that was okay. Maybe the only thing you had was abnormal blood pressure, but your spidey senses were still tingling. Like you, you just didn't have that clinical intuition that it was safe to move forward and adjust. What would you do next? Let me ask it this way. Let me ask it a better way. <clears throat> what is the only way to know for sure whether or not there's a dissection occurring in those arteries? What's the only way? Magnetic resonance angiogram or a CT angiogram? It's the only way. Okay, now I, I hear it. I hear the, the wheels grinding saying, well, whoa, you want us to send every patient out for an MRA? That's going to depend upon your clinical skills, right? Because, you know, I, I said it before, I, I, mentioned, I said the term clinical intuition. 
Please understand when I say that, I'm not talking about an intuitive. Do you know what I mean? Like an intuitive healer, one of those people that can like heal you from a distance and can diagnose you just by, oh, you know, you have cancer. You know, that kind of, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about clinical intuition that is refined through experience, okay, as a practicing doctor, day in, day out, that you have developed a certain amount of clinical intuition that sometimes something doesn't feel right, doesn't sound right, doesn't look right, makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up, you don't feel comfortable with it. That's what I'm talking about. That kind of, it's clinical intuition that's informed by knowledge and experience, okay? That's what I want you to pay attention to. Here's the problem. If you have been practicing for 10 or 15 or 20 or 30 years, and you have not been going through a clinical thought process that's reasonable and rational, right, to triage patients, then you have not developed the skill inherent in, with clinical intuition, okay? So you, you're going to be stuck. You're gonna be, you, you don't know what to listen to because you haven't developed that, okay? And that's where the only thing I can tell you is, well, better late than never, start now, okay? But ultimately, you have to know that the only way to know for sure what's going on in that artery or those arteries is to look inside them, and the only way to look inside them is MRA or CT, okay? So what do we do about this? I alluded to this before about relationships. <clears throat> Number one is you want to develop a relationship with an imaging center close to you and preferably more than one. You want to develop relationships with the radiologists at those imaging centers. And you want to develop those, the relationships to the extent that these people understand that yes, you're a chiropractor, but you're not one of the crazy ones, okay? And we've known each other long enough that I can talk like that, right? <clears throat> I started out talking like that. You want them to understand you don't have horns and a tail. You want them to understand the stroke and dissection landscape because just because they're a radiologist doesn't mean that they understand it, right? You've got radiologists telling you that the loss of the curve on the neck is due to muscle spasm, and it's not. Sometimes they don't know, okay? And sometimes you have to be the one that teaches them. And you'll have to find a polite way to do that. But the bottom line is they want your business, so they're probably going to be willing to listen, at least listen to you, okay? Hopefully, you'll make some kind of connection and develop that relationship so that when you send a patient to them, right, this is the type of relationship you want with that radiologist and that imaging center, so that if you refer a patient to them, that they will immediately after the scan is done, you don't have to wait for the report. They'll get on the phone with you and say it's clean or it's not, okay? or fax you a preliminary report or, you know, whatever. That's the kind of relationship you want to have. Now, <clears throat> if you don't feel comfortable referring somebody for imaging, okay, uh, nothing wrong with that, you don't feel comfortable doing it, that's fine, then it becomes important for you to have a relationship with a medical doctor that you can refer the patient to to then make those decisions, okay? Which means you've got to get out there in your community and meet with orthopedists, neurologists, internists, family practitioners, okay? And explain to them what you do, what you don't do, right? Educate them that you stay in your lane. You're not trying to take their patients away from them, that what you do is unique, 
okay, and you don't want their job and you don't want to take money from them, but you need your, their help in terms of collaborating with these patients because here's what's going on. Some of them may not like that. Some of them may not take to it. Fine, go on to the next one, right? It's just like a patient that doesn't get it. Go to the next one. You will find somebody probably going to be somebody who's younger and more recently out of medical school that's going to be much more open-minded to working with you on these types of things, okay? But you should be doing that for everything anyway, okay? As like I said before, if you're just letting the patient walk into these medical doctor's offices, people that you don't know, then the recommendation from that MD, more likely than not, is going to be don't go back to see that crazy chiropractor, all right? You want to control that to as much of an extent as possible. So the imaging piece. Now, there's all sorts of other stuff. You know, there's blood work. There's all sorts of genetic markers that show up in these people that tend to have these coagulopathies and tend to uh, develop dissections and all this other stuff. On top of all just the general inflammation that's going on, you know, in the population, okay? Um, what else should I tell you about that? Questions about that? Yes? She may or may not have been. She may or may not have been. You know, that, and that's why I'm stressing that, you know, I'm talking about moving a needle, right? Because when you talk about clinical practice, it's not the algorithm, right? Patients don't fit algorithms. Algorithms were developed for insurance companies to decide whether to pay or not pay. You know, cookbook medicine, that kind of stuff. Patients don't generally, generally fit that. So when you're evaluating your patient, you want to do enough things that helps you make a decision relative to your clinical intuition, is it safe to adjust, not safe to adjust? Or maybe at this point you're just, you know what, I don't know. And it's always better safe than sorry, okay? Because what's the harm in sending a patient for one of these tests? I'll tell you what the harm is, okay? Because I know it's rattling through your head right now. Well, the patient might not have insurance. They might not want to pay for it. It's inconvenient. If I send them, they won't come back. I'll lose the patient. I'll lose that money, right? Am I right? This is all the stuff going through your head. Let it go. <laughs> Give up control of all of that. I said this earlier, right? The financial situation that your patient finds themselves in is not your problem. Amen. Okay? I mean, if you tell a patient that, and here's how simple it is, right? Joe, I'll just call you Joe. Joe, listen, you're having this neck pain. You're having this headache could be due to a bunch of things. You might just have this subluxation I told you about a few minutes ago in a consultation, but one of the other things I'm concerned about is I'm concerned that there might be a problem with the arteries in your neck that take blood to the brain. So I want you to go have a test to make sure there's no problem with that, okay? Just fix my neck. Right? Yeah, well, I'm, and then here, right? So that's one level, right? And that's what the patient's gonna say. So then you say, listen, Joe, I don't think you heard me. I'm afraid that you might be about to have a stroke. Okay. Now, at that point, if Joe still says, blah, blah, throw him out of the freaking office. Because hey. okay. he's, he's going to be a problem at some point anyway, even if he's not about to have a stroke. I mean, if you look somebody in the eye as a doctor and say, listen, I'm concerned you might be having a stroke. And they say, I don't care. I mean, they're a crazy person, right? <laughs> yeah, the other chiropractor just adjusted me. <clears throat> And by the way, you know, this goes even for things, simple things like taking x-rays, 
right? You go in and you tell the patient, listen, we need to take a couple of films, come on back, and the patient says, I don't want any action. Can't you just use the ones from my old chiropractor? Can't you just get those from him? Right? The answer is what? The answer is no. Because here's what happens. If you accept that patient, if you told them that they need x-rays, and then they say, I don't want them, and you say, well, I'll treat you anyway, what did you just do? You just destroyed your credibility. You're a liar now. You don't think that that's, if it's not in their conscious mind, it's definitely in their subconscious. Because, you know, I'm thinking, all right, the doctor told me I needed the test. I told him I didn't want it. And then he said, well, he could take care of me anyway. So I probably didn't really need that test to begin with. Yeah. It's the same, it's the same with, with frequency of treatment, right? I want to see you three times a week for the next month. Well, I can only come twice a week. Is that okay? Sure, come twice a week. Well, I guess I didn't really need three times a week. I probably don't really need twice a week. I probably, I probably don't even eat chiropractic. <laughs> I mean, that's what I would be thinking if I went to a doctor and had that kind of an interaction. This goes on every day in chiropractor's offices. So it's, it's sort of the same issue, okay? Don't worry about their financial problems. Don't worry about what, you know, Oh, because, you know, the, the, the stress and the strain of going and having a test and they don't want to do that. They don't have time. They got kids. They got this. They got that. It's not your problem. If it comes back, and here's the other thing chiropractors worry about, what if it comes back and it's normal? Celebrate it. Say, thank God you're not having a stroke. Lay down the table. Let's get you adjusted. I mean, you know, be a doctor, you know. A patient be a patient, you be a doctor. Other questions about this? Yeah. I knew a neurologist years ago that every patient that came to him that had a headache, he took an MRI. Period. I don't blame him. Let me tell you something. I'm not in full-time practice, okay? If I was in full-time practice, if I was in full-time practice, I guarantee you, boy, I'd be making some imaging center a bunch of freaking money because a lot of people would be getting MRIs. Because think about what's coming into your office. This is your bread and butter. Disc problems, DJ, DJD, cancer, dissection, vascular issues. All of this stuff, very simple tests. They can actually see if it's happening or not. You know, this is the problem with chiropractic. You know, we have tests and things that we can do that are good, that are valuable, and we don't use them. Because for some reason we're afraid. Well, that's not the job of a chiropractor. Well, okay, if you don't want to order it, develop a relationship with a medical provider that will. That's all. Simple. You stay in your lane, they stay in your, theirs. So, if you have a choice between MRA or the CT MRI? If I had a choice between an MRA or a CT, I'm doing the MRA. Okay, and most the MRI places will do those? Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's, what I, and that's what I'm talking about, about that relationship is you may have to have a meeting with the people that run this place or the radiologists and say, listen, this is what we're facing in the chiropractic profession. I want to develop some type of a protocol with you where if I have something like this in my office, I can get them over to you. Because your only other option if you don't do that is to send them to the emergency room. And, I mean, if you think somebody's in the midst of one and you have no place else to send them, send them to the emergency room. My concern about the emergency room is only because you don't know what you're going to get when they walk into that emergency room, okay? 
which means you could also develop a relationship with the attending physicians in the ER that, lo that are local to you and do the same thing so that when they're on duty and when you send one of your patients over, you can call them up as they're on their way, you know, and then they can triage the patient once they get there. Are what? Yeah, sometimes the radiologist is in India reading those films, right? Yeah, I I would I would try to find uh, an actual radiologist that's sitting in a dark room in your area, <laughs> if you can. If you can't, you can't. But you know what I'm saying? I would do my best to try to find that. Other questions on that? Yes. What I've been seeing more of now, even with good medical documentation, now that we've got ASH and things like that, is the uh, imaging not getting approved. So how do we traverse? It's not your problem. I'll just go with no treatment until it's approved. I mean, yeah. They're going to come in and say, no, Well, here's where the pen is mightier than the sword. All right? And this goes for anything. If, whether we're talking about MRAs or diagnostic testing or care in your office or whatever it is. If you're in a situation where you've got a managed care company or insurance company or a primary care provider that's not authorizing a test or your care or something else, that's a letter to them, putting them on notice, and you've got to wordsmith it appropriately, putting them on notice that you own this problem now. Is if that patient's in the midst of a dissection and you wouldn't, or you wouldn't let them have that test, you're, you're clean. You see what I'm saying? Unless you go ahead and adjust them without the test. And what I would say to the patient is, listen, Mrs. Jones, I'm concerned enough about this that I'm not going to treat you unless you have this test done. I mean, that's going to put a bug in her head to be like, I've got to have this done. And either she'll go raise hell with them or she'll fork over the money out of her own pocket and pay for it and then deal with it later. But again, you can't let that be your problem other than maybe helping them navigate it to the extent that you're willing to do that. Other questions on that? What time is it? Okay, so we're doing good on time. All right. Yes. Oh, certainly in Florida. I don't know any state. I don't know any state off the top of my head where uh, a chiropractor can't order. It's non-invasive. It's not, you know. Um, that's something you're going to leave up to the radio to the imaging center to make that decision. You know what I'm saying? I mean, typically these imaging centers have, you know, referral forms, right? They want to know chief complaint, what's your rule out, you know, maybe a little bit of a, some clinical history. Um, and, and for the most part, with that, then they should be deciding what else gets done. And that, and that comes through discussion with the radiologist and the center, you know, in, in, in terms of setting up a protocol with them, okay? Um, the, the CT angiogram, is, it's just that, you know, it's, it's more invasive, and there's a lot more chance of, um, you know, they could die just from the procedure, all right? Infection afterwards, stuff like that. But bear in mind that many times with these cases, the patients will have both done. They may initially do an MR angiography, and maybe the findings are equivocal, so they'll also do the CT angiogram. Depending upon the age of the practitioner, they may not know much about MR angiography, even though it's been around, you know, a while. They may feel more comfortable with CT, and so they may be ordering CT if, if, if the medical provider is making the decisions on that, okay? 
Uh, and like I said, there'll be other recommendations in terms of blood tests and things like that. And even in terms of the history, you know, because they might not be, they might be just telling you they have neck pain and headaches. When you start fleshing through that history, you're going to be asking them things like, do you have any blurred vision? Do you have any dizziness? Do you have any ringing in your ears? Do you have any spots before your eyes? Are you feeling, you know, do you have balance problems? And you're listening to them to see if they have any slurred speech, things like that. You know, all of that is part of the history. So, you know, if you're questioning them and they say, yeah, you know, I felt a little dizzy or, you know, yeah, I have some pressure in my ear. I feel like I, I, my ear is stuffed up. All of these things are going to go in the column of it might not be safe to adjust. You know, if there's anything positive in that history. Okay, and then you move, you get your, you, you sit there and you do their pulse and blood pressure and all of that too. And you listen to their carotid arteries. I mean. Me personally. I'm not taking out of the stethoscope and putting it to anybody's chest or arteries because I don't know what I'm hearing. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I can hallucinate and think that I hear stuff, <laughs> you know. Um, but, you know, there's ultrasound tests. For, you know, you can put a Doppler ultrasound to see if there's stenosis in those arteries. I mean, there's objective tests for that, and we're still doing archaic stuff. You, you see what I'm saying? This is why the advanced imaging is so important because no matter what you do clinically in terms of a clinical evaluation, it's in the Stone Age in terms of comparing it to the gold standard for determining if there's a dissection, that's imaging. So should we just, I mean, if from the first step, if we, you know, if any of these things are present, just go and get an MRI. Error on the side of caution. Okay. If you can't, if you, if you don't feel comfortable, if you're doing that and, and you're just, you're not convinced that they're clean, that they're clear, that they're just subluxated and they just need to be adjusted, don't do it. And does that mean that you may end up sending more people out for stuff? Yes, but there's nothing wrong with that. Don't be afraid of that, okay? We, we gotta get past this as a profession, especially in the subluxation faction of the profession. Let the medics do what they're good at, right? All right, let's keep going here, see what else we got. So, <clears throat> So we sort of did all the down and dirty stuff. Let me give you some other scenarios with this because there's a lot of ways that this shows up. I don't want you to be fooled into thinking that, you know, this situation only shows up in, in patients in an acute fashion, you know, like with a new patient. Understand that this could be happening in patients who've been under your care for a long period of time, all right? The best example I can give you for this are people with migraines. All right, what kind of headache is a migraine headache? I can't hear you. Vascular headache, right? So, and you guys have treated people with migraine headaches. You understand the nature of the patient who suffers from migraines, okay? Some of them can get, I'll use the clinical term. Some of them can get a little histrionic, okay? Some of them need a lot of attention, okay? 
and if you've dealt with enough, enough migraine patients, you know what I'm talking about, okay? Um, they need their hand held. They need to be comforted. They, you know, they got to lay in a dark room. I mean, all this sort of stuff, okay? You also probably know that adjusting people with migraines, unlike cervicogenic headaches, doesn't tend to just make the migraines go away and never come back, right? Adjusting people with migraines tends to reduce the severity and frequency of the migraines, but they don't typically just go away forever and never come back, like a cervicogenic headache that, you know, they've been subluxated for 20 years and nobody's ever fixed that. Now you fix it, and they don't really have headaches anymore until that gets aggravated, okay? Migraine's a little bit different. So <clears throat> when these people come in, you may have been seeing them. I'll use an actual case. Maybe it'll be better to tell you an actual case. So this is a, a woman, 35, 37 years old, migraine patient, under chiropractic care her entire life, okay, including while her mother was pregnant, okay? So mother gets adjusted, has the baby, baby's adjusted immediately after birth, and then for the rest of her life until she's 35, 37, going to the same chiropractor, okay? In this instance, the chiropractor is edging towards retirement, brings his son in who's recently graduated, and he's sort of taking care of people now, okay? So this woman, her history is that she comes in around once or twice a month with a migraine, Okay, and they had a whole drill for her. They knew exactly how to manage her. They did the same thing every time. She would get adjusted. She'd go rest in one of their dark rooms, and then she'd get up, she'd be feel better, and she'd go home. And then she'd come back when she was in the midst of a migraine again, right? So that's what happened. She comes in what appears to be a typical migraine episode. They adjust her. They let her rest, but this time she's nauseous, and she starts vomiting. The young chiropractor says to her, I'm going to call an ambulance. Okay, smart, right? Patient says, no, I don't have any insurance. I can't afford it. Don't call an ambulance. Now, right there, what would have been the appropriate thing for the doctor to do? Call the ambulance, right? You don't listen to a patient who's possibly in the midst of a dissection to let them make decisions about what they should do for their health, okay, in their best interest of their health. You're the doctor, be the doctor, make a decision, okay? Well, unfortunately, in this case, he's inexperienced. He doesn't, tell, he doesn't call the ambulance, all right? Instead, he calls her father to come and pick her up, okay? Father gets there. They literally pick her up and carry her and put her in the back seat of the car. This is how incapacitated she was. Father's going to drive home. On the way home, she got worse. She's projectile vomiting at this point. So he takes a detour, goes to the emergency room. Okay? It's, it's a bad situation, you know, because he should have called that ambulance. He shouldn't. Don't put the patient behind uh, the wheel of a car. Don't let the patient go into the bathroom alone. You know, these types, stay with the patient. Don't leave them in a truck with their hands sitting on their hand and they're paralyzed. Okay, and then go ask one of your patients what to do. Don't do that. You know, some of this is just common sense, but we got to talk about it because we don't know who's in the room, right? Um, 
So that's the migraine patient, right? That's the chronic migraine patient who, you know, she's been having these episodes all along, but now she got to a point, age, whatever, lifestyle, who knows, that this migraine, although it looked like all the others, it wasn't quite the same, okay? Now, it's all retrospective at this point. Had he slowed down? Had he done more of a thorough exam on that visit? Had he maybe taken more of a history? Who knows? He's doing probably what most of us would have done in that situation. Now it looks like the same thing you have every month when you come in. Lay down, let me get you adjusted. This is why I'm stressing to you that the landscape has changed. Can't do what we did in the Mercedes 80s and the 70s anymore as chiropractors. Okay? The days of hippodom chiropractic are over. It's just over. Okay? We got to start managing these people like responsible healthcare providers. Okay, the problem is that we tend to take care of people cradle to grave, and so we can get a little lax in terms of our follow-up on subsequent visits. This is where reevaluations become important, uh, and not letting a patient, you know, come in, they're scheduled for a reevaluation, say, oh, I don't have time today, doc, just adjust me, and you say, okay. No, you get your exam or you're not getting adjusted, okay? And how old are those x-rays, by the way? Right? How old is that informed consent? Make sure you're updating these long-term patients. All right? So, so that's long-term. Has now, you know, practicing for a while. We see a lot of patients that it's been a year and a half. They come in, same thing as always. What year and a half since they were in, or they've been coming in for a year and a half? They came in seven, eight times, and they hadn't been in a year and a half. Same thing, doctor. You just do what you did last time. No way. So I'm treating them like a new patient. Then I was going to say, what do you think would be, I don't know what the, I would be careful on patients that are I would be careful on patients that are even coming in monthly. Think about what can happen in a month. And how long does it take? I'm not saying you know you gotta have everybody that hasn't been in a month fill out an update form. I'm just saying before you start thrusting into their <laughs> spine ask some questions. What's been going on the past month? How's life? How's your health? How, you having any new symptoms? Things of that nature. Right. I mean, how many people do stupid stuff like that? And then, I, don't, I, didn't, I had a car accident. I didn't think to tell you, right? They come in the next visit. Oh, I didn't tell you. That last visit when you just adjusted me with no exam and no x-rays, I was just in a car accident. Was it just me that that happened to? <laughs> yeah, I didn't have time, so I didn't tell you. Well, and, and listen, you got to, you know, because we're doctors, you know, you got you to realize when, when you say trauma to have you had any trauma, you know, it, it, what the patient pictures is that old Monty Python skit where, you know, they're cutting each other's arms off and the blood's squirting all over the place. You know, that's what they think trauma. They think trauma, emergency room, that sort of stuff. They don't think trauma is, yeah, I was in a garage and I picked something up and when I raised my head up, I hit the table. I didn't think, 
Well, who knows what the hell happened when they hit their head in the back of that tail, but they didn't think, they didn't think that's trauma. They just bumped their head. <laughs> that can't be good. Cause of dissections, right? Yeah. Right. So if you go and 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 I don't, you know, I, I sometimes assume, especially if you've been around a while, that you're familiar with all this. But you know, when the stroke stuff first came out and the profession started to respond to it and looked into the literature, okay, the reports of dissection and stroke that are in the literature are described as chiropractic, but 99% of the time. It's not, okay? It's, they were in a, they, they were getting their hair done. It was a karate instructor, a massage therapist. There's reports in the literature of a husband doing it to the wife and the wife doing it to the husband and, and dissections happen. And that gets reported as chiropractic manipulation in the scientific literature, right? So a lot of times it's unexperienced people doing things that they shouldn't be doing, right? cracking their own neck. I mean, if you've got somebody that's coming in and telling you that they cracked their own neck, whoo, put the brakes on. I don't know what this is. You I'll know? do my own chiropractic on my neck typically, but I can't get it to move this right. time. Right, right. And you just go like, I'm like, uh, yeah. <laughs> we all have the same patients. So long-term patients, the Dramamine one here, uh, you know, again, just, uh, you know, in, from the annals of, of stupid things that people do, this was a case where the woman immediately after an adjustment <laughs> Uh, starts to vomit and you know all that sort of stuff and dizzy and the CA runs over with her purse and says I've got some drama me now that's that's not the worst of it the worst of it is that's what the chiropractor did he gave it to her okay and things just went south from that point um, you know the homeless thing no good deed goes unpunished. This is why I'm stressing to you to, you need to be very picky about the people that you allow to get adjusted in your practice. You need to triage these people just from, from that perspective. Like, who's going to be a problem and who's not going to be a problem? Now, listen, I understand times are tight and money's tight and now you got to make money and all that sort of stuff. And that's why I stressed before, get yourself to a point in your practice where you can pick and choose who you're going to take care of. And that you're not dependent on them, they're dependent on you. And that's all about marketing. And that can be learned as long as you're willing to learn new tricks. Um, you know, that, this was a homeless guy. I mean, this chiropractor was volunteering at a homeless shelter. And this guy was a walking, talking bag of inflammation, this homeless guy. I mean, he had every disease in the Merck manual. He was an accident waiting to happen. And the chiropractor is adjusting him, ends up the guy has a, a dissection and a stroke, and sues the chiropractor. <clears throat> the homeless shelter where he worked, he, the chiropractor wasn't named on their malpractice policy, so he had no insurance coverage because he didn't have his own malpractice insurance. So he's out there blowing in the wind, being sued by a homeless man, right? <clears throat> Waiting room. There's a story about that. I'll skip it. We were talking about history. Let's do this. This might be worth doing. Just history alone. I want you to understand risk, okay? 
I am a 52-year-old male. So it tells you how old that slide is, okay? I'm a 52-year-old male. I just turned 52 in May. My paternal grandfather died of a heart attack. My paternal grandmother died of a heart attack. My maternal grandfather died of a heart attack. My maternal grandmother died of a heart attack. My mother died of a heart attack. My oldest brother that you met this morning had a heart attack about a year and a half ago. My, one of my brothers died from cardiovascular disease. Two of my brothers died from cardiovascular disease. Am I at high risk for cardiovascular disease? Based on that history alone. Now, I could walk into your office and say, <clears throat> I, don't, I don't have any problems. I, I'm, I'm here to get my subluxations checked. Right? I, want, I want that wellness y'all talk about. Right? I have no symptoms. You go through my history. There's nothing else. All there is is that personal history. Do you want to ease up on the gas with me? I would. Right? I'd want to do a more thorough evaluation on this person. You know, you may not need to do it all at once if there's no presenting signs and symptoms of concern, but you want to understand that this person has a significant history that could unfold over time and it could happen in your office, okay? So history is important. We talked about relationships with MDs, imaging centers. <clears throat> this, this is my suggestion. I referred to a protocol, okay? Listen, you know, have, have the freedom or take the freedom to make it up, okay? And I don't mean just make-believe. I mean make up a protocol for yourself that you're comfortable with, that you feel like, listen, if somebody comes in and, you know, McCoy told me to be thorough and all this sort of stuff and to have my spidey senses on, if they come in, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. That's going to be my protocol, okay? And if you're insured with us, we have, we have a whole, we have like a handout back and front uh, that you can use to do that in our members-only section. Uh, come up with a protocol that you feel comfortable with because at the very least we're going to be able to put that in the mitigating column, right? Here's how thorough our doctor is. Here's what a good doctor he is. He, when the patient came in, yes, he was concerned that they might be having a dissection and so he took a, he went and did a little bit more of a history. He did some exam procedures, yada, yada, yada. Right? All that's going in the mitigating column. We're going to tell the jury about what a great doctor you are, that you went above and beyond and you did all these things. And yeah, they still ended up having a dissection and stroke. But here's the thing. Bad things can happen to good people, and it's not your fault. You understand? Remember, in malpractice, I said it earlier, you've got to have a bad thing happen, but you also have to have a violation of the standard of care. So if they came in, you adjusted, they were in the midst of a dissection, a dissection completed itself, but in as many ways as possible, you stayed in, you stayed in line with the standard of care, you're going to be better shaped than if you didn't, okay? And that's also true <clears throat> post-adjustment if they have an untoward effect after the adjustment. Everything you do from that point forward is going to be crucial. Okay. Did you call an ambulance? Did you get them to the ER in a, as quickly as possible? Because how long do you have to get them to the ER? You got 90 minutes to get the clot-busting drugs in them. Okay. You got 90 minutes. Some people say 60 minutes. So time is of the essence with this stuff. Okay. So while you called the ambulance, did you do, you know, do a neurological test on them? Did you take their blood pressure? 
Did you check their pulse? Did you make them comfortable? Did you stay with them? Did you not leave them in their truck? That kind of stuff. Okay? Yeah? Right, right, and you're going to try to differentiate Bell's palsy from from stroke? No way, forget it. Right. Listen, better that you did that than didn't do anything. Would it have been better, you know, if she was in the midst of a dissection? Would it have been better to call the ambulance? Yes, but you know, you did something. <laughs> We're going to be able to brag about that, okay? Uh, protocol, aggravating, mitigating factors. We talked about post-adjustment decision-making. George says we talked about informed consent. What time is it? 6.30. 30. All right. So let's touch on the informed consent issue. <laughs> Just, you know, and, and let's understand something. You know, the whole causation issue, the scientific literature is crystal clear. Spinal adjustments, spinal manipulation do not cause dissection. The li scientific literature is clear on that, okay? Put the scientific literature aside for a second. How many people are old enough to remember the OJ trial, right? You, so if you're old enough to remember, you remember when that PhD in biomedical sciences got up there and explained the vagaries of DNA to that jury and everybody fell asleep. Okay? And then Cochrane got up there and said, if the glove don't fit, you must quit. Right? That was it. Right? Two days of testimony from the, the expert on DNA in, on this planet. Nobody cared. Cochrane gets up there, glove don't fit, quit him. That's what they went with. You understand? Same thing with this. This is why I put this up here, right? You're not going to convince 12 people who couldn't get out of jury duty that putting a force right here couldn't tear that artery. You're just not going to convince them it's not possible. I don't care how many letters after your name. They're going to look at that, and they're going to look at that, and they're going to say, well, sure. And you'll have an expert up there that's saying it's possible, too. They'll find somebody to say it's biologically plausible. I had a slide up there about biological plausibility. It's one of Hill's criteria of causation. Okay. Is it biologically plausible that if you put a force here in this vertebral artery where it has this tortuous nature, okay, and there was plaque there, that that artery is weaker and that force could have dislodged that plaque, torn that artery possibly, and led to a dissection? Is that biologically plausible? Of course it's biologically plausible. And there's no expert that's going to be able to sit on the stand and say, no, that's not biologically plausible. Because he'd have no credibility. And technique enters into this, right? Because people say, well, I'm only doing activator. I have plenty of stroke cases where, where activator was how the person was adjusted. Stroke cases with toggle. Stroke cases with NSA. It doesn't matter. If you're putting your hand on that patient, Somebody's going to be able to make an argument from a biological plausibility perspective that that force could have torn that artery. Hello? 
Let's just show them this picture. I mean, any earthling, right, is going to look at that and say, yeah, I guess that could tear that artery. Okay, even though the scientific literature says there's no correlation. As the, right, who remembers this picture from, about George's test, right? I just dug this out of my filing cabinet in my basement a couple of weeks ago. Um, the inflammation stuff is everywhere, right? Secret Killer, Time Magazine, on the cover, surprising link between inflammation, heart attacks, cancer, Alzheimer's. Oh! <laughs> I forgot. People of Walmart. <laughs> it's a website. <laughs> now, I want you to understand something. I created this slide, this schematic, before I saw this one. Right? Look at my slide, vertical subluxation in the center, and it's connection with all these disorders and the inflammatory process and so forth related, and then Time Magazine publishes this, and its relationship to all those diseases, right? It's all connected. And you remember my thing about walking, talking bags of inflammation? I came up with that before I read this. Most modern people are boiling pots of inflammation, hot, steaming, churning cauldrons of disordered, chaotic, inflammatory responses. And that's from an MD, so it must be true. <laughs> Wasn't from some chiropractor. <clears throat> inflammation and atherosclerosis, uh, inflammation related to pain, cytokines, we did that. Let me see if I can quickly get to the informed <laughs> consent. And look, this is, you know, if we had more time, I'd give you some good news. There is actually chiropractic literature that says we're good for cardiovascular disease, that reducing subluxation <laughs> helps people with cardiovascular problems, including blood pressure, things of this nature. And, and there's a healthy, robust amount of this literature out there, okay? So we can be happy about that. All right, here's the informed consent stuff. I'm going to fast forward to the cut to the chase here. Okay, so here's the thing. We have an informed consent, uh, uh, an example of informed consent. But understand something, like if you have an informed consent that you got from your malpractice insurer or somebody else, make sure that that informed consent fits what you're doing in your practice. I mean, like for instance, we have uh, stuff in here about physiotherapy, right? Physiotherapy. Well, if you're not doing physiotherapy in your practice, why would you put that in your informed consent, right? Informed consent has to be unique and match what you're doing in your practice, okay? Yeah, that'll be one of the things I send you. Um, <clears throat> So some, here's what you need to understand about the stroke thing. And this doesn't apply to Florida, but it's just sort of an FYI. Some states mandate, require that you tell patients that chiropractic may give them a stroke and kill them. There are some states that require that, California, Wisconsin, and a few others, all right? So there are some states, even though that's not true, that you have to tell a patient that. I mean, this is how absurd this is. Florida is not one of them, thank, thankfully, not yet at least, okay? So there's language in here about stroke in terms of how to handle that in informed consent. But if you're not in a state that doesn't require that, 
then don't use it. Because here's the thing, why would you tell a patient that there is a risk of stroke and dissection from what you're about to do to them when the scientific literature says there's no connection? It's, I mean, it doesn't make any sense, okay? And if you do tell them that in your informed consent and then something bad happens to them, it's going to be hard for you to use the fact that the scientific literature says there's no correlation when you told the patient there is. Because the attorney's just going to be like, well, which is it, doctor? Are you just saying that now because you're being sued? You see, I mean, you're just, there's no way to come out of that smelling pretty. So risks associated with some chiropractic treatment may include soreness, musculoskeletal sprain, strain, fracture, risks associated with physiotherapy, blah, blah, blah. In addition, there are reported cases of stroke associated with visits to medical doctors and chiropractors. Research and scientific evidence does not establish a cause and effect relationship between chiropractic treatment and occurrence of stroke. Rather, recent studies indicate that patients may be consulting medical doctors and chiropractors when they are in the early stages of a stroke. Okay? In essence, there's a stroke already in process. So if you're in a state where you had to use this, this makes the conversation with the patient kind of easy and you can educate the patient about this. Say, listen, you know, we live in a society where a lot of people have cardiovascular problems and stroke, and one of the things that you might have if the arteries in your neck were affected is you might have neck pain or headaches, okay? But there's no risk that I'm going to cause a stroke. So we're going to do a good exam and take a good history, and if we need to, we'll do further tests to make sure that that's not the reason why you have neck pain or headaches, okay? In essence, there's a stroke already in process. You're being informed of this because a stroke may cause serious neurological impairment. And this is what the literature says. You also notice here the word association. There is no correlation between chiropractic adjustments and stroke. Correlation is a causation issue. Okay? Does it cause this? All right? An association is something different. Okay? And the reason why there's an association between chiropractic adjustments and stroke and dissection is because there were two guys that did two studies several years ago where they called up patients who were discharged from the hospital with diagnoses of stroke and or dissection. They called these people up after they were discharged from the hospital and they said, yo, Mr. Patient, can you tell me if you saw a chiropractor before you entered that hospital? And some people said, why, yes, I did see a chiropractor before. Some people saw the chiropractor the day before. Some people saw the chiropractor a month before, okay? And they did the statistical analysis, okay, to come up with an association between seeing a chiropractor and a subsequent diagnosis of dissection and stroke. So there was an association between the two. Doesn't mean one was causing the other. But again, this is like OJ. You got to explain this to 12 people who couldn't get out of jury duty. And it's no different than, let's say we thought, let's say you woke up tomorrow and you said, you know what, I think dentists are causing car accidents. I think they, I've got to get to the bottom of this, okay? And you called up the police stations in your area and you asked for police reports. And you got copies of these police reports and you called these people up and, and you said, listen, I see you were in an accident, you know, a month ago or two months ago. Can you tell me if you saw a dentist before you had that accident? Well, if your sample size is big enough, you might have enough people that say, why, yes, I did see a dentist. And then you crunch the numbers and you find out, you know what, there's an association between seeing a dentist and having a car accident. We better do something about it. <laughs> this is the absurdity of this. 
but you got to, but you know, when you're in a legal situation, you know, you're stuck with the jury you're stuck with. So you don't want to end up in that situation. All right, let's uh, wind this up here. Does everybody recognize this? What planet is that? I'll give you a hint. You can see his head and his face. Pluto. That's Pluto. Okay. <clears throat> Do you know that we flew a spacecraft past this planet? Well, it's not a planet anymore, but we flew a spaceship past this rock not too long ago. You heard about this, right? Pluto is, I think, billions of miles from us. I think it took like 10 years for the spacecraft to get there. And we did that from Earth. You know, these, these, these you know, nerds at NASA are sitting there flying a spacecraft from Earth to the outer reaches of the solar system. You got it? And it took pictures. And it's continuing to fly past Pluto, and it will eventually leave the solar system and continue to send information back to us for as long as, you know, the instruments work, right? <laughs> exactly. This, you may have heard about this. These are two black holes colliding. Now, this isn't an actual picture of it, okay? Because this happened billions of years ago. The reason that we know that these two black holes collided was people on Earth built an instrument two miles in diameter to measure what's called the gravitational waves created when two black holes collide, okay? And as soon as they turned the machine on, they got this reading back. Why is this important? This is important to the human race because this confirms Einstein's theory of relativity, these gravitational waves. Because if there's no gravitational waves, then Einstein's theory of relativity is out the window, right? So it took this long to confirm it, right? And we were able to do that, right? We were able to figure this out as human beings, the scientists that we have on this planet. You may have heard about this, right? They found <coughs> this uh, planetary system called TRAPPIST-1 that has a bunch of planets that are all in the habitable zone, the Goldilocks zone, meaning that they are at the proper uh, orbit from their sun that they could sustain life. We just found these planets. These planets are 40 light years away. This is trillions of miles, 235 trillion miles, okay? So we were able to find planets that are 40 light years away, okay? It gets better. This is Alpha Centauri, our closest star system to us, okay? Alpha Centauri is only four light years away, okay? TRAPPIST-1 is 40 light years. Alpha Centauri is four light years away. And there's a couple of planets there that are in the Goldilocks zone, okay? <coughs> this gives you more of a schematic about it. So what we're doing, our scientists, and this is Mark Zuckerberg, Stephen Hawking and some Russian billionaire are building a satellite that they are going to send up into space. And then all of these little things that are about as big as your hand are spaceships, mini spaceships, that are going to use what they call solar sails, that when they get up into past Earth's atmosphere into space, that these solar sails are going to send those little spaceships to Alpha Centauri, to those planets, to see if there's life on them. It's only going to take 20 years for them to get there because of this technology that they've developed. If we sent a space shuttle to do this, it would take 165,000 years. 
It's only going to take 20 years. I mean, they're actually doing this. This is going to happen, right? What's my point in telling you this? My point in telling you this is that the means exist to figure out this subluxation thing, don't you? I mean, we have the technology to send a spaceship four light years away in 20 years. I think we can figure out the freaking subluxation question, right? Thank you for your attention. Have a great rest of your weekend. Make sure you get scanned out. Otherwise, you've got to do this all over again. Let me just shut this off.